Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Hendersonville Show podcast. I'm Brandon Allfriend, and today I'm honored to bring you a conversation featuring Mayor Jamie Clary. I feel like his intro kind of goes without saying, but for those who aren't aware, Jamie has served as mayor of Hendersonville since 2016, was previously an alderman, and has worked in various parts of city government for a long time before that. He's also author of the book, The City by the Lake, Volume 2, which is a history of Hendersonville from 1968 through 1988. It was an honor speaking with Mayor Clary today, and without further ado, let's roll the intro. Mayor Clary, thank you for joining the show. Um, for those who aren't familiar with you, even though you are the mayor of Hendersonville, uh, would you mind just uh, sharing a little bit of background about yourself and, and how you got into this position? Sure. Uh, I've lived in Hendersonville since 1973, grew up here, went to public school from kindergarten through 12th grade here. Uh, I was alderman for four years as a planning commissioner for six years, uh, constantly involved in nonprofit organizations in my church and in the soccer community for a long, long time. Uh, and I got elected in 2016. Having said all that, I have three sisters, two of whom are known very well in the city uh, because one owns an ice cream store and the other one teaches dance. <laughs> so if I think that, uh, that, that my background helped me get elected, I am very much wrong and very often corrected. It has a lot to do with my sisters and my family. <laughs> so I also wrote a book on the history of Hendersonville, uh, which I think helped a little bit as well. Uh, like I said, I was elected in 2016 and then reelected in 2014. Yeah, I, I must say, um, you, your sister makes some good ice cream. I was, I didn't know you guys were related. I took my four-year-old son there a couple weeks ago, and we got the talk, and she's like, oh, by the way, my brother's the mayor. <laughs> and um, Baskin Robbins on Main Street, it, it was excellent. So there you I go. recommend that. <laughs> I, I got to ask you about this book. I, okay. I'm looking at it right here, The City by the Lake, A History of Hendersonville. Mm -hmm. 1968 to 1988. So mm -hmm. we connected two or three weeks ago to, to figure out when we were going to chat. And I'm like, oh, I'll get the book and read it. And the first thing I noticed is like, this is a really thick book. And then the yeah. second thing, this is volume three. Mm -hmm. So there's two others that come before it. it and um, I'm just impressed about by the amount of information <laughs> there is about Hendersonville. I mean, it's, it's incredible the depth like basically anyone Thank and you. everyone who ever lived here is, is in the book. So uh, <laughs> I, I'd like to hear what, what sparked your interest in writing specifically about Hendersonville? Well, first off, you, you are correct. This is, this is volume two, part three, uh, very similar to the way Star Wars came out. What happened was I was working at Hendersonville Star News, a local newspaper, uh, mid-90s, and a uh, local attorney was doing some research because he was also a county commissioner he was trying to find out more information about Hendersonville's past. And he constantly found himself going to multiple sources and was in disbelief that there wasn't one source for information on Hendersonville. His name is Tim Takis, and he decided to take it upon himself to write a book on the history of Hendersonville. I helped him a small, small bit. Uh, he came out with his book. I want to say it was maybe, I think it was 93. And when he finished it, he came and sat down with me and he said that he had intended to do what he considered all three parts, which was getting up to uh, 1980s, 1990s. He said that he, he uh, would prefer if I, if I did it. So he, in his first volume, he covered the first two parts of the city's history. So I did some research and certainly was appreciative of Tim 
offer me that opportunity and decided this looks like something could be pretty neat. It spent me six and a half, it took me six and a half years to write the book. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, it, it was definitely a labor of love, it, but I'm very cautious and I let people know this is a history of Hendersonville. I don't consider myself in any means the ultimate and the, uh, and, and, and the 100% perfect historian of Hendersonville. If anybody else wants to write a history of Hendersonville, go, go for it. Um, I think there are many other areas that could be covered in Hendersonville, and I welcome people to do that. I'm, I'm very humble when it comes to what Tim asked me to do, but also I understand that there are, there are other people that could do it as well. Um, my background is history, government, and newspapers. My, my minor is English, and um, I enjoyed the heck out of it. You, you mentioned how thick it is. Uh, a lot of people are a little bit surprised at, at how big it is. And the number one question I get, and keep in mind, this, has been out, this book has been out for 20 years. The number one question I get is, does it have any pictures? <laughs> so, what took me six and a half years to write in one weekend to put together the pictures generates questions. Does it have any pictures? And the answer is yes, it has about 20 pictures. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking through it. There's, there's like six pages of pictures and the total page count. I mean, this includes the index, but we're, yeah. I think, 439. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, um, it's not a novel. It's, it's not something somebody's going to sit down and read. In fact, when somebody tells me they read the whole thing, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about them. It's a reference book. It's split into 10 chapters, and some chapters are, uh, have a little bit more flavor to them. Uh, some don't. Uh, but I felt like a, a book on the history of Hendersonville should include what we consider history. It should include just what we consider entertainment. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. What, what did you find most surprising about your research about all of this? Because it, it seems like Hendersonville didn't really take off until yeah. the dam, which was, yeah. I believe, the mid-50s. And so you wrote yeah. 68 to 88, which was sort of the, the heyday of the boom, although that seems like yeah. it's continuing to yeah. this day. If there is any theme to this book and any theme to the story of Hendersonville, it's growth. But I think you sort of hit the nail on the head of, of what might have been surprising was that it was a sleepy little hamlet, a village, really, until the 1950s and the dam came in. Uh, what happened was instead of just the river that goes by uh, this land that's somewhere close to Hendersonville, we ended up with two main peninsulas and a lot of coves and Drake's Creek was much wider, which created a very attractive place for people from Nashville to come out to live. So in the late 50s and early 60s, there's a lot of folks from Nashville, especially in the music industry, that came to Hendersonville to live and they bought five acre lots that are now small subdivisions and they bought houses with two and three acres that are now there, that the, the houses have been torn down, but bigger houses have been built. And in the, in, in the land that's sort of in the middle of those peninsulas are some of our larger subdivisions that came really in the 70s and the 80s. The growth in the 70s and 80s, and this is something that's a little bit surprising to me too, fit exactly what my family had done, is we had moved from the Midwest, my parents moved from the Midwest in 1973 and came to Hendersonville. There were so many other people in similar circumstances that actually mirrors what was happening in the, in the great shift, great migratory shift the United States in the 1960s and 1970s. Everybody was moving to the Sun Belt, to the South and the West, and so many of those people were moving to the suburbs. The, what precipitated a lot of that was air conditioning, uh, interstate highways, and changes to school systems in urban areas. So Hendersonville was ripe for what was happening in the 60s and 70s United States. 
And what sort of surprised me was, I didn't know that my family was really uh, the epitome of what was happening throughout the whole country at that time. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. So you were one of many going through this whole transition. Mm -hmm. What what strikes you? So, you, I mean, you lived this. You were in Hendersonville in the 70s and, and 80s. Mm -hmm. What would you say has changed the most? And what what would you say is is the same, like inherently Hendersonville? So this is something I don't think people understand that, that have moved to Hendersonville recently or moved to Hendersonville even 20 years ago, that everything really that happened in Hendersonville was between Indian Lake Road and New Shackle Island. So commercially, that's what happens between Indian Lake and New Shackle Island. Uh, I grew up part of the time off Walton Ferry, uh, part of the time off of uh, Crumlin Hills. Where, whereabouts and, off Walton Ferry? I, I got to ask, because uh, yeah. that's where I live as well. <laughs> Walton Ferry and Hickory Heights. Okay, nice. Right at the corner, right at the corner. So when, when we lived on Walton Ferry, we came out and we'd take a right because everything we needed was sort of right at that intersection, maybe a little bit down close to Indian Lake. When we came to Indian Lake in Gallatin Road, we took a left. That's where everything, was, everything happened. The big, the, the, the big anomaly in that was that my church was St. Timothy Lutheran Church, which was farther east in town. There was nothing <laughs> between Indian Lake Road <laughs> And my church, I should say very little. Uh, Bluegrass Country Club was there. Uh, Bluegrass Market was there. But really, that was it. And certainly nothing north of there. Indian Lake Road ended at Gallatin Road. Maple Drive ended at Gallatin Road. Anderson Lane ended there. And now you have this whole area of uh, Indian Lake Boulevard. And then you also have this area of Glenbrook. That just didn't exist out there. And I think what a lot of people don't realize, newer people, people have been here only 20 years, is that everything that happened commercially and even socially happened really between, uh, between Indian Lake Road and uh, New Shackle Island Road in Hendersonville. So it, it almost seems like, I mean, if you look at the shops at Indian Lake and a lot mm -hmm. of the other new development, mm -hmm. we, we might need a fourth volume or a fourth round of this book. <laughs> is, are there any plans to uh, get that going? Um, I was younger. I didn't have kids. <laughs> when that I, when that I makes wrote, a difference. <laughs> when I wrote my book, uh, it's a labor of love for sure. And occasionally people have asked me if I have interest to, in doing the next one. I don't. Um, I encourage anybody who would like to, just as Tim encouraged me to. Um, I'm happy to provide my two cents that uh, somebody can take or leave. It's really up to them. I would like to see something. Uh, my volume only went through 1988. So obviously, you know, we're, we're nearing, you know, what is that, 35 years. Uh, since, since, uh, stuff since has happened since covered. then. Yeah. That's yeah. Sure. I mean, a, a lot. I mean, you, you just mentioned, uh, you know, a good portion of, of, you know, just talking about streets of Indian Lake and such. Um, we were not a, we were not anywhere close to a self-contained community between 1968, and 1988. We were very much a suburb. If you wanted to, uh, buy a men's coat, if you want to buy a woman's dress, if you want to go to a sit down restaurant that didn't exist in Hendersonville. So where would you go? What Rivergate? Yeah, it's very much yeah. Rivergate, um, and Hendersonville sort of grew out of, like I said, a suburb of Nashville, sort of grew out of a lot of people moving from Nashville. Uh, the, the traditional trek was that people who grew up in Nashville then ended up buying their first house in East Nashville, and then when they had kids, they moved out to Sumner County. Uh, we had a lot of people in Hendersonville in the early 70s and, and 80s, and even today, that graduated from East and Lytton High Schools in Nashville. I said for a long, long time, we probably had more people from East and Lytton High School than Hendersonville High School. Uh, in Hendersonville. Now you can take that to, to, to sort of another extent. We have a lot of people in Hendersonville that
that are Ohio State fans or Illinois or Illinois University fans. I, I must um, admit, I, I am an Ohio State grad. So. <laughs> so, and what's happened is it's sort of this second great white wave of migration that I've talked an awful lot about that is coming to, coming to Tennessee. And I, whereas I used to talk about how many graduates were of East and Lytton compared to Hendersonville, now I talk about how many fans there are of Ohio State in Illinois versus University of Tennessee. There's still a lot of Tennessee fans, so you can't beat that. <laughs> Go Vols. For better or worse, yes. <laughs> yes. So shifting gears a little bit, so we talked about history. Where do you mm -hmm. see Hendersonville going in, say, the next five mm -hmm. years, 10 years, 20 years? Like, what, what's the long-term plan like that, that you envision? So what I would like to see is Hendersonville be more, more self-contained as far as what we offer people who live here. Uh, I would like to offer more entertainment. I offer like to offer more professional opportunities. I like to offer more of what people have been going to Nashville for. Uh, and a lot of that really comes down to jobs. We are moving gradually toward having more professional jobs in Hendersonville. I talk very frequently about uh, we need to encourage jobs in Hendersonville for the people who live in Hendersonville. We still have, in my opinion, too many people that are traveling outside the county to go to work. The impact of that is significant. When I was involved in the Hendersonville Soccer League as, uh, as on their board of directors, we had a hard time getting people to coach. The reason we had a hard time was because so many parents couldn't get back from their jobs in Nashville in time to coach on a Tuesday or Thursday afternoon. Um, that just has an impact on volunteerism. It also has a negative impact just on the quality of life that families have. If we have more people working in Hendersonville during the daytime, they're more likely to get to go to lunch with their kids at school. They're more likely to be involved in their neighbor and know their neighbors. And they're more likely to be home in the evening and participate in things that happen, participate in events that happen. But they're also more likely to be eating lunch in Hendersonville and, and, uh, and, becoming, and becoming and remaining customers of restaurants here. So if we can do that, and we've, done a, we, we've started making that shift really over the past 10, 12 years, if we can continue that shift where we provide more of what people need in Hendersonville that they're, that they're currently getting outside Hendersonville, I think that makes us just, 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 a, just a superior community. And, and that's, where, that's where I'd like to see us move. I couldn't agree more. It, so it sort of seems like you bring jobs and then that brings residents and, and commercial opportunities, restaurants, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah, that's and that's awesome. huge. We, we've done a pretty good job of bringing retail and bringing, bringing restaurants here. The next thing we really need to do is bring some of those professional jobs. Obviously, the pandemic has changed sort of what people anticipate in a job environment. Uh, you know, for I always thought what we needed to bring professional jobs here is we need spec office space. Uh, it turns out now we spec office space is wonderful and having office space available for companies that want to move in the next two or three months is wonderful. But it also is about broad, uh, broadband connection to homes is that if, you, if we Definitely. can get better connections and better pipes to people's houses, they have a greater opportunity to work from home. So is the city involved with that or what is that process like? Because then you're getting into this monolith of utility sure. industries and everything else. <laughs> you're exactly right. Um, we're not terribly involved with that. We're not going to put fiber in the ground. Uh, we are encouraging the utilities that do that an awful lot. AT&T has a ton of fiber in the ground on really the central business district of Hendersonville. We want to see that continue. We also want to see 5G rollouts. Uh, we want to see the utilities that are needed in Hendersonville for us to compete 
we want to see those here. It used to be in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that businesses would move to a community um, with one of their variables being how close is an interstate highway. The interstate highway of today is fiber, it's 5G, it's, commu it's communication technology. 100%. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the pandemic, I mean, what I hear is it uh, advanced technology by like 10 years, or maybe not advanced technology, but just how we interact with it and, and what the mm -hmm. expectations are. I think you're exactly right, is that I don't think you or I would know how to Zoom at this point, um, had we not really been forced to. Maybe so, but I fought off Microsoft Teams for a long, long time, and then Zoom came along, and to me, I didn't have a choice. I had to learn that. Uh, also, just the way that we, just the way that we, we pay vendors now, uh, so much of it online, as well as just, it's, it's just common to have a FaceTime conversation, which is a mobile conversation, a mobile video conversation is so much more common than it was just a couple years ago and more acceptable. Whereas <laughs> it used to be expected that if I was going to have a conversation with my supervisor, that I would be sitting in his office. Now it is very much acceptable to be having a Zoom call or a FaceTime call. And I, I think we, uh, we gain a lot from that. I mean, you lose a lot, you lose some of the personal touch, but you know, overall, I think it's a win. I think people have adjusted enough that I agree that overall it's a win. So what was it like being mayor during a pandemic? Because that, <laughs> I mean, such a controversial time yeah. and yeah. you know, I, I'm not even sure how much the city's involved with it. A lot's at the county mm -hmm. level and state level, but what was it like grappling with that? So in March of last year, it became a, almost a contest of one-upsmanship among mayors in Middle Tennessee. And this probably happened everywhere. And it wasn't that we were trying to be a better mayor than the mayor next door. We were trying to show that we were doing what was right. So when the mayor next door would close movie theaters, Every other mayor felt like we need to close movie theaters, but then we should also clo close barbershops. So then the next mayor would say, well, movie theaters and barbershops, you know, it also needs to be bowling alleys and playgrounds. And we really got in this situation where we responded more to what was happening next door because our constituents were expecting that. Well, if they did that, there must be a scientific reason that that city did that. Therefore, our city should do that. We didn't pay attention to science. I mean, a lot of it at that point, because so, we knew so little about the science. Um, we didn't really know how COVID was transferred at that point, at least not, didn't really have a, a solid idea. We had speculation. What happened in March, early April was the governor sort of stepped in. And I don't think this was his, he had many intentions, but I don't think his intention was to help out necessarily the mayors out of this, out of this predicament. But what he did was he stepped in and said, this is the way it's going to be statewide. That was huge to us. He has a staff and he has an understanding of what really was best for the whole state. And I'll say within about 90, 95%, he had a pretty, a pretty solid idea there. Uh, and so that helped us an awful lot. There were some places where we needed exceptions. I'll give you a great example, is that we have a beer manufacturer in Hendersonville, um, a half-batch brewery. They are not a restaurant. They are a manufacturer. However, they do have a tap room that people can come in and, and taste their beers, and they can sit down, and they can buy beer, and they can, have, and they can have some snacks. What the governor's orders early on did was essentially close down that restaurant, close down that, that company, 
because the restaurants were closed. So he, he wasn't really shipping much beer out there, but his tap room was also closed, even though he was in a restaurant. So we, I must have spent 20 hours on the phone trying to figure out an exception for him. All this goes back to what the governor did was very helpful. It was very difficult for mayors before then. It became still a little bit difficult for mayors after the governor made some of his decisions, but at least at that point, it was consistent and the exceptions were fewer. Uh, it, was, it was tough. Um, the expectations that people had on a mayor were, were too much and, and they were extreme. Um, I like don't they, have they expect the, you to, to know everything. Me. And yeah, obviously Hendersonville doesn't have the same resources as there you go. the state of yeah, Tennessee. So another example is people expected me to close restaurants. I don't have the authority to close restaurants. Um, you need to have a, a county health department to have that authority. Our county health department is a division of the state, which gives us some technicalities. People expected me to close restaurants. If, when I didn't close restaurants, then they expected that um, that I would enforce the governor's determinations that the restaurant should only be, I think, 30% at a time. They expected me to then close down that restaurant. I can't do those things. So who, whose responsibility is it to enforce that? Is it, that's tricky. Got to love yeah, checks it and balances. It is. And it's even trickier when the six largest counties in the state have their own health departments. They get to make their own decisions but the other 89 have health departments that are branches of the state. So therefore they have to follow what the governor says based on his, his uh, uh, commissioner of health. <laughs> so it's just, it's, so what would happen in Hendersonville, a lot of times people would say, but they're doing this in Davidson County. Davidson County has their own health department. And as, it, it, as much of minutia as this is, that made a huge difference. It, it's really interesting. Um, there, there's so much you can get into with, with, all the details and nuance and everything. Yeah, yeah, there is very, I mean, I got a lot of phone calls from people said, I should have done this, I shouldn't have done that. They were happy that I did this, they were unhappy I did this. Very rarely did I actually do what they complained about or gave me praise for. <laughs> Look, from, from my perspective, looking back at March and April of 2020, I don't think anyone knew what was going on. I mean, maybe there was a couple people, but we were all yeah. just trying to do our best, so. So I sort of took on the role of doing my best to convey the information that was most important to people at Hendersonville. Uh, and I, I tried to convey that it wasn't my decision, but this is what you need to know. And, and then when, when masks became available from the state, I did my best to get those masks out to as many people as possible. We used local banks and it was something that wasn't my idea, I saw somewhere else. But it became obvious that a lot of people needed masks and we didn't have enough of those. And the governor was encouraged people to wear masks. So I called up, 20-something banks in Hendersonville and said, could you make these available at your drive-thrus? So people didn't actually have to go inside. They could just pull up. And then we, um, we advertised the heck out of that. And that was something that I could do. Um, and, and it worked out pretty well. That's awesome. Thank you. So I'm going to shift gears for a moment. And this, okay. is, this is a topic that you, before, before we uh, started recording, you said you uh -huh. wanted to talk about, but is, uh -huh. is roads. And it kind of yeah. ties into an, uh, another question I have, but let, let's start with roads. And okay. I know that was a major, um, I don't know if issue is the right word, but it was talked a lot yeah. about during the campaign yeah. in 2020. Yeah. So. so before I came mayor, the city was spending enough money to pave, road, pave each road once every 42 years. Um, our roads don't last 42 years. Most of our roads only last about eight to 10. So our roads were in a, uh, were in, were in bad shape. And it's, embarrassed to say, it's embarrassing to say that. Roads were a high priority for me when I came in. 
because I knew that if we didn't start addressing them now, that at that point, that the costs would become exponentially greater. Uh, to not, not bore you too many details, but if you don't address a road when the top layer become, diminishes in, in quality, then you have to address the lower layers and becomes much more expensive. Most of our roads really have a life of probably eight to 12 years. Some of our back roads, some of our cul-de-sacs can last a little bit longer than that. Uh, we did our best early on uh, with some of the aldermen we had then to increase spending. Some of the money was later taken away uh, from what should have been repaving. This year, we are gonna have $2.95 million available for roads, which is tremendous. We've never had anywhere close to that amount. I think the most we've had before that is 2 million. That will help us catch up on some of the roads, but it still uh, puts us behind on, on roads that are getting bad. So when we're, when we're catching up on, on a problem that's existed for a little while, we're not really able to prevent some of the problems that are gonna to exist tomorrow. We are looking for ways that we can spend less money and maintain and, and preserve our roads a little bit, uh, but it's hard to do. Uh, roads have to be maintained, roads have to be taken care of, and there isn't, there, there really isn't many, really aren't many ways to cut corners on that. Um, we, uh, we've got a three-year plan on, on which roads we're gonna address, but even though we recently approved that plan, I still get calls from people that say, can you, can you do some work on my road? Can you repave my road? And the answer is yes, but not in the next three years. So is that, is that like one of the issues that you get the most complaints from or for lack of a better word? That is the issue I get the most, um, most emails, most phone calls, most face-to-face -face conversations about is, is the state of people's roads. Uh, we, um, we're, getting, we're getting better. And I at least like the fact that for a lot of people, I can point them to this plan that we have and I can tell them, your road isn't getting paved this year, but it will get paved next year or the year after that. And even people who are not on that three-year list, at least I can tell them, as these roads get paved, you move on that list. And that, that's helpful because I get, that is the number one item that people ask me about. Because I heard there was like an analysis done recently mm -hmm. showing, okay, these roads are the priority. So it mm -hmm. seems like we have the, the order of priority. It's just a matter of funding. So there where, you go. Where do those funds come from? Obviously, property taxes and everything yeah. else like that, but that's sort of fixed to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Um, we so our public works director in 2017 finished a project where he put a rating on every road, and we had a plan at that point to go forward. the The city didn't spend what we needed to to keep up with that plan. Uh, I was very disappointed in the way in some of the votes and uh, with, with some with some of the budgets that we had. So that. So that made those ratings almost obsolete because a road that was rated as a 62 years ago, we don't really know what it is today. And we can no longer use that whole list because the road that might've been rated as a 70 might now be a 50, but we don't know where that 60 is. So that, that rating system helped us briefly. And I, and I still turn to it some. Like you said, though, it really comes down to funding. Half of our, the, the two main streams that we have for revenue in the city of Hendersonville are property tax and sales tax. Property tax is pretty much fixed. We can raise it a little bit, but it's, it's tough to do that. It's tough to get seven votes to do that. And I honestly don't think that we needed to do that. It's, it's something where I feel like we've got some expenses in the city that are lower priority. Streets and infrastructure are pretty high priority for me and we need to move some money there. An odd thing happened this, this circumstance happened with COVID. As I mentioned a little bit a second ago about the difference between Davidson County and Sumner County, 
since Davidson County was essentially closed for so long, a lot of people in Sumner County that go out and spend, you know, a couple hundred bucks on a weekend night in Nashville, they were spending that money in Hendersonville. Our sales tax at the beginning of this calendar year was unreal, absolutely unreal. Our fiscal year ended in uh, on uh, end of June, and we finished about we're in the neighborhood of about uh, twenty percent above our projections for sales tax. And the reason is that so many people in Hendersonville that used to spend some money in Nashville weren't spending that money there, but people in Davidson County and Robertson County were coming to Sumner County to spend their money. So our sales tax just went through the roof. Um, we had anticipated in the neighborhood, I think, of $15 million in sales tax. We ended up over $18 million in sales tax for the, for the fiscal year. So there sort of was a silver lining to everything that was going on in Davidson County, and it benefited us in Hendersonville. Immediately upon finding out that we're going to have this, this sort of um, windfall sales tax, I pushed the board to add more money to road paving, and they agreed. And then with this current year's budget, we got to almost $3 million. It's been, it's been incredibly helpful. That's great. Um, speaking of sales tax and, and restaurants, uh -huh. I, I, I got to think that the Hendersonville Facebook page had something oh my to do gosh. with this. I mean, it, w we have some good restaurants here and, and that's uh -huh. brought a lot of awareness. There's mm -hmm. some new ones coming in. I got to ask, wh what's your favorite restaurant in Hendersonville? <laughs> and they're down to about 10. I mean, and I'm terrible about this, but you're exactly right about Eat Hendersonville. I have done, Mauricio has done amazing work and I recognized him at my state of the city address two years ago for literally changing people's lives. Those restaurant owners who were scared that they were going to lose everything they owned in April and May of 2020. And what he did was he kept them in business and he encouraged people to keep them in business. I mean, he absolutely changed people's lives. I have a tendency in the afternoon to, or in the morning, they have no idea what I'm going to have for lunch. So at 11, 11.15, I pull up Facebook and I pull up Eat Hendersonville and I go down the list. Where haven't I eaten lately? That's awesome. <laughs> so, I love it. Um, and, and probably my next one is, um, uh, is probably Jumbo and Delicious. I haven't been there in a little while and I was thinking about that, that today. Uh, but that's just one. Is we, have, we have, like you said, several, several restaurants that are unique and valuable and that they offer, they offer food that you're not going to get without traveling a good, good distance. And uh, what Mauricio has done and Eat Hendersonville has done, as well as I have to give credit to the Chamber of Commerce and pushing the Thrive and the 37075 uh, campaign as well, that people have gotten used to the idea that we have good spots to eat, we have good spots to shop, and there's really no reason to go outside. Um, I will, on the course of a week, probably eat it four of those restaurants in the, on the Hendersonville list. <laughs> That's awesome. Where, where, I, I'm curious, where's the last place you ate in Hendersonville? So I was at Casa Vieja the other day. Nice. Um, I, um, I'm a fan of Fortune House, uh, which by the way, probably the number one email I got for a couple weeks a year ago was when is Fortune House going to reopen? <laughs> so many people want to know what's going on there. It's um, good food. I, I love Fortune House. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right across the street is also good. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are so many locally owned restaurants that we have here that the owners really take an interest in what's going on. Sanders Ferry Pizza is a great example. And I've got to give some praise to them and some of our other restaurants because recently we just finished our, um, our summer reading program. It's called Summer Month of Reading Experiences. It's S'more Reading Camp. And several of the restaurants on Mauricio's list, they step up and provide meals for these kids. We have 
35 kids that don't pay to go to this camp, but we know that if we want them to read in the summer, we've got to make it fun. And we know that if we want their parents to drop them off, we've got to make it all day long. And so we get donations from local restaurants and it's those Eat Hendersonville restaurants repeatedly are the ones that are stepping forward that are helping out. So tell me more about this, this program because okay. I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Okay. So when I came into office, I sat down with several folks that I knew involved in education and I asked them, what is, what is something the city can do that can show that education is important in Hendersonville? And one of the statements I made repeatedly is that the property values in Hendersonville are really determined by the quality of schools in Hendersonville. So if you take this backward, the quality of schools determines property values. Property values determines how much money, determines the, um, the, how much money that the, that the residents pay the city in property tax. The amount of property tax that we generate determines how many roads we paved. So if we have good schools, we have good roads. Um, and that's a little bit of a, a, of a crude um, understanding of it, but it's very, very true, is that undoubtedly our schools are the number one variable in what determines our property values. At the same time, I felt like we have some, some students that, that were suffering in the summer times. When I sat down with some of these folks involved in education, they said, absolutely, that's the case. And so we started the summer month of reading enrichment. That's a program that for four weeks every summer, we provide a, a educational component that's just about reading. And it's for rising third graders and rising fourth graders because we know that those students are likely, if they don't have an educational component in their summer, those students are likely to see their reading skills decline during the two months of summer. So where they are in May, they come back in August and they're worse. We wanna make sure that we give them what they need to at least maintain those reading scores. We hire professional teachers, we buy, uh, we buy, we, we buy uh, uh, commercial curriculum, and we treat it like school. It's, it's not just a camp. We treat it like schools. In the morning, they are focused very much on reading. In the afternoon, it's more fun activities, but it's all focused on reading. Kids don't pay a thing for it. Uh, we take advantage of donations. Community Church, Community Church of Hendersonville is our location. They consider it a ministry. They have just been amazing with that. Several restaurants that have been on board for a couple of years, they continue to come back. And it's just been amazing. This is the result of that. We test our students before they come in and when they leave. Half of our students maintain their reading skills during that time, half of them improve. We haven't had one yet whose reading skills have declined in those, in those four weeks. That's incredible. Kudos to uh, the whole group that put that together. So it's, it really is. And it's, um, uh, I'm very proud of the number of people who've been involved in that and just the folks that have come together that have seen this need and the impact that it has. We've probably had 120, maybe 130 students go through it. And the impact is, is, has been huge. And I tell people that it's, it's really because of the number of people that have been involved. If people are interested in that, where, where's the best place to go? And Probably the best place the to go is, is my personal Facebook page, uh, Jamie Clary. Uh, they can find some pictures there. They can send me, they can send me an email at mayor at hvltn.org. Um, we are always, we just finished it last Friday. Uh, we'll get, start getting ready for next summer. We are always interested, especially in teachers helping us out because we need teachers to identify students that would benefit from this. Um, but we're of course always looking for donations and other people to volunteer. The Literacy Council of Middle Tennessee 
they're amazing in what they provide in, in volunteers. We have volunteers come in the afternoon and a lot of what those volunteers do is they just listen to kids read. They also bring in dogs. And this is, this is something that, that caught me off guard. They bring in dogs because students will sit, young students will sit and read to dogs and continue to read to dogs because dogs don't correct them. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. So, Mayor Claire, do you have time for one more question? I know sure, you've you got a hard stop here pretty soon. Yep. Um, you mentioned Sanders Ferry Pizza a little bit ago, and mm -hmm. I, I live nearby there, um, and that's been a hot-button issue lately with mm -hmm. no delivery zone and, and the red signs all over the place, which at this point I'm sure most everyone in Hendersonville <laughs> has seen unless you're oblivious. Uh, what, what's the story with that? Because I know, you know there was all sorts of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, just curious your thoughts on what happened there. So uh, Sanders Ferry Pizza has done very well uh, at, their, at, their, uh, at their site on Hickory Heights and Sanders Ferry Road. Uh, the owner there had decided that they wanted to build something bigger. Sanders Ferry Pizza uh, started looking at other locations and eventually settled on a location that recently just opened up. Um, a little location bit is awesome, by the way. I don't know if you Yeah, it is. It, it is. Um, bigger, bigger patio, better parking. Um, and I've been there a couple times. It's, uh, it's a better location for them. The folks who own that site, uh, they initially wanted to build a tower there, a uh, mixed-use tower. Uh, there were some technicalities that they, they uh, couldn't comply with. So then the owners looked at some property at 216 Sanders Ferry Road. The idea there is that they would have two towers of mixed-use. Because our infrastructure is where it is, I have consistently voted against new subdivisions. Uh, I have always had a hard time with with high density sub with, with high density residential. We don't have the infrastructure to handle that. We certainly don't have the infrastructure on Sanders Ferry Road. The owners knew very early on how I felt about that. I was not bashful at all when people would email me uh, about that about that property and that rezoning. And unfortunately one of the one of the partners in there started sending me some very ugly emails uh, to my personal email to a personal email account. We had to turn those emails over to our police to our police department, and they had to uh, take out an order of protection and charge that person, and um, uh, and that person has not been back to Tennessee since, as far as we know. If he comes back to Tennessee, he'll be arrested. Uh, he has continued to send me emails even after he was even after I told him not to contact me, even after police told him to con not to contact me, even after a judge signed an order of protection. Um, I hate that that one of the variables for some people as they consider this is the way that somebody treats somebody else. Really the variables for this should be, is this an appropriate place for, for this plan, this project? I don't think it is. Um, I think most people on the Sanders Ferry Peninsula uh, don't think it is either, uh, but that, that, will, that will be in front of our board on August 10th and uh, we'll, see, we'll see what happens from there. I assure you, I don't like what uh, one of the partners has, has been doing to me as well as some other folks, but that is not part of the consideration I have when it comes to making decisions. Yeah, I mean, regardless of anyone's stance on this, like that, that's just not acceptable. I, I'm sure scary for you and, and your yep. family and, and everything else. So yeah, I, I'm sorry you had to deal with that. I appreciate that. It's been, it's been, um, it's been tough. My kids don't, my kids are eight and 10. Um, they don't know why police officers tend to be around me sometimes. <laughs> um, and they don't know 
they don't notice sometimes we don't stay at public events as long as we usually would. Um, uh, I, I look forward to, to that no longer happening um, and hopefully that'll be the case. So you mentioned it's going to a vote on the board August 10th. August 10th. And so we'll find out here, you know, maybe by the time this airs, uh, we'll have an answer on that. Um, yeah. is, is part of the proposal that they offered, are they offering to pave some of the roads? Because I know infrastructure is a major concern. Mm -hmm. We cannot handle that traffic on yeah. Sanders Ferry. Um, yeah. There's talks of a greenway. So yeah. were they going to pay for some of that? Is that part of it? Yeah, they've offered uh, to do that. I'm not real clear on what exactly they've offered. And in front of the Planning Commission, they sort of increased what they were offering. And, and even that made it a little bit less clear. Um, I, I love it when, when the city doesn't have to pay to improve roads. However, if we're improving road based on what it needs today, but then we're adding a greater burden on that road, that, that doesn't solve the problem. It's a net and, negative and, at that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a net negative. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mayor Clary, I know you're a busy guy. Um, really appreciate your time today. Do you have any closing thoughts or or anything else that you would like to say? So this is what I very often say um, when anybody in media or anybody really asks me, you know, sort of in general terms about Hendersonville, is I tell people that we're a growing community of professionals. Uh, we certainly welcome businesses. We certainly welcome new people. We're an exceptional city. There's no doubt about that. And I believe that we're the best city in the best state and the best country in the world. And I'm very proud to be the mayor. Excellent. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks, Brandon. And I uh, appreciate you doing this. Um, I, always, I always love the opportunity to talk about Hendersonville. Well, I really hope you guys enjoyed this awesome conversation today. And thank you so much for tuning in to the Hendersonville Show podcast. Really appreciate it. I'd also like to give a special thanks to Mayor Jamie Clary for taking time out of his busy schedule to have this conversation, so thank you very much. Now, before we go, I'd like to leave you with a few words from the great philosopher and or basketball player, Dikembe Mutombo. God put us here to prepare this place for the next generation. That's our job, raising children and helping the community. That's preparing for the next generation. So with that said, thank you to everyone. And until next time, stay classy, Hendersonville.